This segment will be football-free for the rest of this week. I need to give my brain a rest, and we'll get uh, back deep into the Super Bowl, obviously, next week. So let's start with some NBA discussion, our first official NBA segment of 2024. Out to the KDUS hotline we go. We're now joined in the sports by Dan from Vail Bleacher Report. Dan, I think we've done this with you in past years. My, you know, Sorry about that if that's true, but uh, you got to help us out for all of us have been almost all football for the last few months here. Uh, kind of a uh, we need a, kind of like a starting point for the rest of the NBA season. I want to start with the uh, the Timberwolves and the Thunder. They played last night for first place in the Western Conference. Uh, the Wolves win the game. Uh, what about the Wolves and the Thunder uh, have stood out to you? Why they've been this good so far? I think to start with the Wolves, their defense has just been hellacious this year. Um, and you look at how well their starting lineup, even when Mike Conley's healthy, has been. Defending, you have two guys coming off the bench in Nasri, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who are both pretty dirty defenders on most nights. And that's just given them a baseline to beat um, some really good teams, to also just put up an incredible record. They do have some questions on offense. I think they need a little bit more shooting and another ball handler because of how reliant they are on Mike Conley. But the defense is for real. And, and OKC, meanwhile, they're one of the best two-way teams in the league. And they're another squad that could maybe use another – you know, playoff-worthy ball handler just because of the way teams have been defending Josh Giddy in crunch time. But they, you know, even more so than the Wolves, I know Minnesota took that game, um, they more so than the Wolves when you look at Oklahoma City's depth, the way they've been shooting from three, um, just the play of Jay Gildas, Alexander, Chet Holmgren, and Jay Dub, they might just be as currently constructed one of the, you know, three to five best title contenders right now. The Wolves. I remember last year, you know, the pieces supposedly didn't fit with, you know, all the bigs and so forth. How's is that changed? Uh, and how has that changed? And why has that changed? I think a big part of it is that they're healthier this year. And so if you remember, Carl Anthony Towns missed training camp last year, then a huge chunk of the season. And so created sort of this stop and start nature for their season. And I think that Rudy Gobert looks a lot healthier too. He was apparently playing through, I think some hip stuff last year. And I know players or some people think players use that, use that as an excuse. He is moving unlike anything we've kind of ever seen from him. And so when you have his baseline rim protection with actual athleticism and strong perimeter efforts in front of him, when you look at Jaden McDaniels, when you look at Anthony Edwards, um, even some of the defense that Colin Anthony Towns has played, this year, it makes his life easier and allows you to do a bunch of, of different things. And that coupled with a full season of Mike Conley, who's just a great passer, knows how to get guys the ball where they want it, some more development from Anthony Edwards. I think just availability has probably been the, and better health has been the biggest difference for them. And I think that's kind of reinforced when you look at what their biggest flaw is. As I mentioned, you see the offense kind of torpedo a little bit. They still need that other connective tissue because when you look at some of their best guys, Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, even Jane McDaniels, like, yeah, Edwards is a really good passer now, but he can still make some uh, boneheaded type decisions or the ball will stick or they won't throw these simple passes. And that's why they've struggled with turnovers so much this year. I've watched uh, almost all the Suns games. They can't defend most nights that, uh, except for last night, they don't have much of a bench. How do you view the Suns? I still think if they're going to have Beal, Durant, and Booker on the court, they can be just about anybody. I do think that, at least when you look at their top six guys, factoring in Yusuf Nurkic, Grayson Allen, Eric Gordon, you kind of understand what you're going to get from them. Um, the thing that concerns me the most has been 
their play in fourth quarters. And I know injuries have been noisy yeah. with that, uh, but they're not even shooting well on, forget the offensive process. Their, their shot selection, or excuse me, their shot efficiency on wide open jumpers in the fourth quarter, only the Lakers are shooting worse in those situations. And that's actually been true even since they started their kind of 13-5 and five tear at the end of December. And so it does feel like they're pressing a little bit in the fourth quarter. It doesn't feel like they're reacting well to the extra pressure defenses are sending at them. And then they're just sort of missing these in addition to the turnover problems. They're kind of missing these shots that they should just actually hit. And so there's a chance that normalizes as the season goes on. But I do think you look at this rotation and say it would be great if they could get one more person at least um, that they can trust when it matters most in the fourth quarter, in the playoffs, et cetera. Okay, so that kind of goes right into what I was going to ask you about next. They're obviously paying Booker, Durant, and Beal big NBA money. Are they stuck when it comes to making any moves before the trade deadline? They're not stuck. It's just difficult. Um, they do have some players that they could send out, but Grayson Allen, one has become so important that you don't necessarily want to use his salary just to match a whatever deal. And so the challenge for them is can they find kind of a, a cheap athletic big or another wing or even just another ball handler type who's an upgrade over what they have behind Booker, Beal, and Durant right now who's they can get for seconds and maybe not little salary and another salary to where they can take back, you know, just a few extra million dollars. And I would argue that now is the time for them to be that aggressive or creative because they won't be allowed to aggregate salaries and trades over the offseason and leading into next year, which makes a deal even harder than it is right now. And so there are a bunch of names that can float around there, whether it's a Javon Carter, a, a Najee Marshall, could they get Nick Xavier Tillman or somebody from Memphis. Um, there are guys that might fall into a salary range they could get. I just wonder whether they have, when you look at the actual players they'd be sending out, a Knox Little or some of the seconds they can give, whether that's enough for them to get somebody who cracks the top seven or eight of their rotation. All right, Dan, back, you know, back to the kind of the Western Conference in general here. You know, which teams do you think right now? Uh, well, let's go back to Oklahoma City and, and Minnesota. You know, I mentioned before last night there were one and two in the West. Do we believe in them in the postseason? Uh, I do, for the most part. I think they both kind of have their overarching flaws, as I mentioned before. I think OKC is probably closer to a team I would trust than than Minnesota, and that's just the team. I'm curious how the two big setup holds up against certain um, matchups, offenses that might attack them in that vein. And then, as we mentioned before, they're just their turnover issues and passing issues on the offensive end. All right, the Lakers and the Warriors, they're ninth and 11th in the West. Is there any hope for them once the, the playoffs start or if, if the Warriors, even if they make the playoffs? Yeah, the Warriors, I just feel like their season's kind of done. And I know people have been trying to figure out trades that make sense for them. There's just no player I can identify that they could feasibly get where you think that it would really remedy what's wrong with them this season. The Lakers are a little bit different because I think they've shown flashes of kind of this higher peak. And you also just have age 39 LeBron James and Anthony Davis, who may be the second best player, defensive player in basketball right now. I think you have to operate with a, a little bit more urgency. And I think you could envision if they were able to swing a trade for a DeJounte Murray um, that could make a really big impact on their offense, which has probably been their biggest struggle, is that there are just times where it gets too sloggy in the half court. They don't have enough shooting. Murray's not known as a shooter, but he's been having a career year from beyond the arc, and I think even mid-range this year. So I think they're the team that is more interesting to me as we get to the deadline and moving forward because it feels like they're, one, more likely to do something, but, two, 
I think that they might be just a little bit better equipped to actually make something of their season than Golden State is right now. The Celtics have the league's best record. You know, they did some roster shuffling in the offseason. Why have they been so dominant to this point this season? They're really just able to, you know, their defense is great. And, you know, Derek White has been fantastic this year. Christoph Porzingis' rim protection when he's been healthy has been good. But they're just able on offense to stretch defenses to this breaking point when they're essentially just playing five out all the time. And the defensive decisions it forces opponents into, you can kind of see it. Um, you know, regressing their setups into just anarchy and, and confusion. And so you have all these shot makers on the Celtics. They can still be a little bit too jumper-reliant, and there is variance to the way they play. But because they have all this spacing, even when you lament maybe the lack of drives or some of the lack of playmaking, they just have so much space to make things happen that I think it's really just pushed so many other teams to the brink. And that's why they probably, I think, in a lot of people's books, look like the title favorite right now. The Bucks, uh, second best record in the league, but they fired Adrian Griffin last week, replacing with Doc Rivers. How can Doc make the Bucks better, and how good can the Bucks be? I still think, as constructed, the Bucks do have a title ceiling. I don't know what Doc Rivers can necessarily do that's going to improve their their defense by an appreciable amount without some personnel changes. Uh, maybe they can improve their their play in transition. That defense has been awful with guys not getting back, including after they, you know, they miss shots. And so if you're able just to get them running up the floor and get your defense set a little bit more or make sure your defense is set even after making a shot, that could help a little bit. But when you're dealing with a lot of, you know, Damian Lillard, Malik Beasley, even Chris Middleton, who's a couple steps slower this year, having to defend a bunch at the, the point of attack, um, you are going to run into some issues with ball containment as well in the half court. And so I think that's a team that really could use a defensive specialist at the, the one or the two specifically as they get into the trade deadline. Weren't they like surprised with their defense drop big time when they traded, you know, holiday for Lillard. I mean, my God, even I could figure that out. Yeah, I don't, there was definitely supposed to be a drop off with the transition stuff is interesting because that's a lot. The struggles there, people just correlate to effort. And I don't think it's necessarily all that for, the Bucks, but to see how bad they've been in transition and in certain moments, I do think the drop-off was darker than I think they even could have anticipated. And, um, you know, maybe it should have been a dust thing because you look at Middleton, just him getting older, he's had some knee issues. He kind of should have banked on there being a, a lot of issues there. So, uh, yeah, it's the, the transition defense is a big one for them, and I think I'm even been surprised at how bad they've been there this season. All right, MVP candidates need to play at least 65 games uh, now. Uh, Joe Embiid likely is not going to reach the 65. Is the 65 you know, game limit uh, for MVP qualification, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Yeah, I go back and forth on it. I appreciate the spirit of it because you want to see the best players actually play. But then you get into situations where you're wondering if they're trying to come back too early from injury. We kind of saw this with Tyrese Halliburton in Indiana when he played during Pascal Siakam's debut. It makes you wonder, you know, the Embiid as he's been chasing a 30-point streak and him trying to play in a certain number of games and he tweaked his knee. Would he have missed more extensive time as this threshold for all NBA for the MVP wasn't there? And so that feels dangerous if we want players to actually be the healthiest and, and at their best possible for the postseason. At the same time, I think you could make a case where even if Joel Embiid was eligible, he plays in 64 games, 
Um, I think right now, if you're going to have someone like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who plays in, let's say, 73 or something, 73 games of this version of Shea Gilgis-Alexander is more valuable than 64 games of Joel Embiid. So I kind mm-hmm. of understand it from that perspective. But I do think once the new TV deal is going to be negotiated, um, I think that this is something the league ultimately revisits just based on some of the early returns from this season. You mentioned the Pacers. You know, we've seen them play against the Suns twice in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm watching these games and I'm thinking, my God, I remember Rick Carlisle was, you know, who I think is a really good coach, or at least he was in Dallas. It was more of a methodical approach. And now it's like, if you see the rim, give it a shot. <laughs> so I'm kind of stunned at his change of approach. Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of it has to do with personnel, where if you're going to play with Tyrese Halliburton and the way that he's able to get up and down the floor, even after the inbounds, that you just want to give him that agency. And even looking at some of the other players on that roster that can run the floor in a in a Buddy Heald, in an Andrew Nemhart, having a floor-spacing five in in Miles Turner. Now, Pascal Siakam, who kind of fits, uh, fits their, their ethos to a T, but it is when you watch so many of the teams that Rick Carlisle coached in Dallas specifically and even – you know, his first you know go round with the Pacers, and when he was in Detroit, um, there is like a huge just gap between stylistically how he used to coach and what he's doing now. Um, I do think credit to him though that does speak to his ability to adjust. I think some yes. of the people that have criticized Doc Rivers the most is his lack of functional adjustment that the years have gone on over the past two and a half decades. And so I think you have to respect Rick Carlisle kind of catering to his personnel. I totally agree with that. There's not enough coaches in all sports that do that. Uh, the Knicks, uh, currently fourth in the East. They've won seven in a row. Should I believe in the Knicks? Uh, they're an interesting team, but not having Mitchell Robinson, now the Julius Randle shoulder injury, I do think that throws a little bit of a wrench into their stock in the East. And it does feel like even at full strength, they kind of feel one creator type short of rumbling uh, legitimately with Philadelphia, with Milwaukee, with um, with Boston. And so they're kind of just that next tier below, which is a great position for them to be in, but they're still sort of biding their time for that for that bigger move. Ending up with Jalen Brunson was great two summers ago. The OG Ananobi trade has worked out for both the Raptors and the Knicks, arguably, but they're still sort of biding their time for that bigger blockbuster to maybe acquire someone who actually ends up being their best player, which is it's a weird thing to say about a team that's still so good that has potentially two All-NBA players, although Julius Randle probably won't play in 65 games now. Um, but that is really what they're missing at the moment. And so maybe they change our minds once they get to the postseason, but I think they're still lacking that type of player. The NBA trade deadline, February 8th, uh, earlier than usual to my recollection, uh, also, did the NBA realize that Super Bowl week, and it's also the same day as the much-hyped NFL Awards Day, it, it, could they done it a different date than that or a different week? Uh, so normally it is around the 8th, the 9th, or the 10th is just the day. That is normally, so I think okay. that's just purely a coincidence that it ended up the Super Bowl feels like the one that might be a little bit later. Um, than normal this year. Yeah. So I guess they could it have is. looked at it, changing it. It's a week it, later. It, yeah, it is a week later. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that, that accounts for it. And also just them having the All-Star game already scheduled, I doubt moving the deadline was um, something that they ever really looked at. Okay, so speaking of the trade deadline, uh, you know, a lot of players out there already rumored to be dealt, and that's been going on for you know, for weeks, probably since before the season even started in some cases. But who do you think are – 
some of the most likely difference makers that could be traded before the deadline? You know, we already mentioned DeJounte Murray. I think he's a name to keep an eye on. He's viewed as widely available with Siakam and OG and Harden off the board. I think he might be the best player that um, feels realistically available right now. Zach Levine's name has been bandied about, but he's injured again, and his market is uh, kind of tepid at the moment. So I'm interested to see if, one, the Bulls can find a taker that gives them value for him, and two, if they're actually willing to kind of even engage in a soft reset where does DeMar DeRozan become available? What about Alex Caruso? And then I am just curious because there are so many names that we talked about already off the board, including as Harry Rozier going to Miami. Do we see any sort of surprise names that have been theorized but they're not considered available actually get moved because teams come in over the top at the last minute for a lack of other options? And I think just the two names to loosely monitor would be Larry Markinen in Utah and Mikael Bridges in, in Brooklyn. By all indications, those teams are not looking to move those guys, but could someone come in with a godfather offer that forces them to reconsider when you look at their places and their respective conferences? It it wouldn't shock me if we saw something like that happen. Okay, so if some of the guys that are rumored are maybe one guy or two guys, you know, do a little connect the dots here for me. Whether this might happen or not, who do you think would be one of those players uh, that you mentioned, or somebody that maybe uh, you didn't have time to get to there. Who and what would be a good match, do you think, that would make a difference once we got you know past the, the trade deadline for the rest of the regular season and the postseason? I think when you're looking at DeJounte Murray, his fit with the Lakers is good. The Knicks have been interested, and I'm wondering with Randall injured if they're a little bit more aggressive at the deadline. He's also a team like the Orlando Magic could really use someone like him, so are they a team that gets a little friskier at the deadline? When you're looking at a team that might have the, the picks to, to pry a Larry Marketing out of Utah, uh, it really comes down to do we think that Oklahoma City is going to try and be aggressive at the deadline because they have an offer that would be able to get Larry Marketing. They have a need for someone like him on the front line who does a bunch of different things on offense, can maybe help their rebounding a little bit. So I think that's sort of the team a lot of people are monitoring when it comes to Larry Marketing. And when you're looking at Zach Levine, uh, right now I'd probably pick the Pistons as just the favorite to get him because they seem to be itching to make a move, and they're really the only team that's been steadily linked to him over the past couple weeks. Dan, this is great. I appreciate it. Thanks much, and uh, I'm sure we'll uh, be bothering you frequently for the next few months. Thanks. Most definitely. It was great talking to you. Take care. All right, Dan Favale from Bleacher Report. Read all this stuff, which is a lot. Uh, at uh, Bleacher Report, so excellent uh, stuff from Dan. And uh, we'll get more into the NBA as we get closer, at least on this show, as we get closer to the uh, to the playoffs, certainly. But uh, you know, occasionally in the next uh, few weeks, uh, especially after we get through college basketball for the most part, which is going to dominate this segment after Super Bowl week next week, uh, and maybe some baseball uh, in this segment too. But uh, that's kind of the plan, and that's been the plan for a long time. And... As far as I know, it's going to stay the plan. 